One of the hard parts about being in a somewhat Christian culture is the presence of the category of people I'm going to describe as the almost Christian. What I mean by a Christian culture is this is a culture that has been reached with the gospel. There are churches everywhere. There are tra- Bible translations in our, in our laps and there's you know, just the gospel is assumed in our culture. We celebrate Christmas. <laughs> it's just kind of a given that there's a Christian influence in our society for better or for worse. Some people take it different ways. It's just kind of assumed that it's there and, and there's many difficulties that presents but one of the key difficulties is that it creates this kind of assumption of the gospel in people's lives. And I don't mean that you assume other people are Christians. I mean that oftentimes people assume that they themselves are saved without ever having possessed saving faith. People go to church oftentimes because they were raised going to church, something they've always done. They go to church because they go to church. (laughs) And even that develop, that repetition develops convictions about morality, convictions about theology, convictions about society, convictions about ethics, convictions. And over time, that can create a person with strong feelings about the world, strong feelings about the scripture, strong attendance at church, oftentimes even serving at the church in many ways. And yet that person remains but almost a Christian. A phrase, almost a Christian, it's not one I invented. It comes from the book of Acts. The Roman governor told Paul, Paul, you persuade me to almost become a Christian. And of course, Paul says, forget the almost, come all the way in. The water's fine. But my fear is that there are those who are almost Christians. For them, this church is as close to heaven as they will see. Which perhaps explains why they attend frequently and love it. Because they enjoy the worship. They enjoy the time and the word. They enjoy their friendships and their relationships. It's a diverse body. And in that sense, it represents heaven. And so this is as close as they'll experience. And I mean, I hope that's not true. I hope this church is not the closest thing to heaven you will ever experience because there's something greater in the future. It reminds me of the Joel Osteen book, Your Best Life Now, and you hear that title and you think, oh, I hope not. Please no. (laughs) There's a corollary to this for the person who has saving faith, for the person who has been converted. Sometimes in life you feel downtrodden, you feel... uh, distressed, you feel like the world is trampling on you and you feel distraught, you feel so despondent, you feel close to hell. But for the true believer, understand that that is as close to hell as you'll ever get. Because there is glory in the future. But again, back to the other side of that coin, there's the fear that grips my heart that there are those in the congregation who are but almost Christians. And the sobering reality is that for that kind of person, another sermon's not going to help them. It's not knowledge they're lacking. Humbling for me is the reminder that Judas heard all of Jesus' sermons. 
He was tuned in every time Jesus preached. He was engaged. And yet he remained but almost a Christian. Sometimes the almost Christians can even be effective evangelists in the same way that a lame man with a crutch can point you the direction to go, but he just can't walk there himself. So it is with people that can often tell others how to follow Christ and yet remain but almost a Christian. I want to wrestle with that this morning as we look at this passage because I think the core issue in the almost Christian is the relationship between faith and works. How these two intersect. I mean, this is kind of one of the key theological dynamics that's at play. We understand that a person is saved by faith alone. It's drilled into our minds. As Protestant evangelical Christians, from the moment we first step foot in in church or even the, the moment we first are brought to church by our parents, we grow up knowing that you're saved by faith alone. You can't do works or in your salvation. Salvation comes by faith alone. And that so quickly produces a person that says, I don't need to have works. I don't need to have a life that follows Christ. I don't need to be obedient to Christ because after all, I'm saved by faith and faith alone. So don't, you know, our kind of evangelical culture just has this low common denominator approach to Christianity that if you say you're a Christian you say I believe in Jesus and that's good enough for us come on in and it treats any skepticism or any have you been converted kind of questions with incredulity like who are you to judge because aren't you saved after all by faith alone so to help us understand and wrestle through that dynamic you have to understand the language of salvation by faith alone was not invented by americans in this last century the language and the concept of salvation by faith alone i think it is inherently biblical especially in the book of romans that you're not saved by by works but by faith and yet the way it's phrased and kind of the scaffolding that we have built around salvation it very much comes from the protestant reformation 1500s where catholicism had its grip on Europe, it's grip on Christianity. And Catholicism uses the same kind of words we use between faith and works and justification and salvation, but it uses them all very differently. Understand that in Catholicism, you're born into this world with Adam's sin. You're born a sinner because of Adam's sin nature. But you're baptized as an infant into the Catholic Church, and that baptism dispenses or, or washes or removes the stain of Adam's sin from you. And that begins the process of justification. In Catholicism, justification, being declared righteous, or the being forgiven by God, that concept of justification, it is a process. It's not a one-time event. It's a process that carries on your life. It begins with the work, namely the work of baptism, a sacrament. But as the person grows in the Catholic Church, they grow in their knowledge of Catholicism, their knowledge of the scriptures, and they grow in faith. But their faith is not what we think of as in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Their faith is in, of course, the truth of Jesus and the truth of the scripture and the truth of the church, namely in the effectiveness or the efficacy is the word of the sacraments, the efficacy of good works. This idea that as you grow in faith, your faith energizes your works. Your faith fuels your works. And so you do do good works and you do good works because you're in the process of justification. The more works you do, the further along you are. And the works are the sacraments, of course, the celebration of the mass and confession and penance and 
you know, even sacrificial works, works of charity and love and giving to the poor and making the world a better place and so forth are good works that are energized by your faith along the process of justification. And justification will be final in the afterlife after remaining sins are, are purged and purified through purgatory, you stand ultimately justified. And what you stand justified on is the life and the, the treasury of good works done by you and the saints and and Mary, of course. All of that is what justifies. So it's, it's not right to say that Protestants believe in salvation by faith and Catholics believe in salvation by works because even in Catholicism, it's works, but they're fueled and they're energized by faith in this long trajectory of justification. That's the worldview that grips Europe during the time leading up to the Reformation. And of course, that's where Calvin and and Luther and other reformers object to Catholicism because they say that's not the biblical description of salvation. It's a, this is a, a lens change. Swap out this justification as a trajectory. Swap out this salvation as this process and replace it with this idea that justification is instantaneous. It happens in a moment, not in a process. It happens in a moment and it happens the moment the sinner places their faith in Christ. Now notice the object of faith is different. We don't believe you're placing your faith in the, the, merit, the meritorious elements of your work in your life. We believe you're placing your faith in the merit of Jesus's finished work on the cross and the power of his resurrection. Protestants also believe you're saved by works. It's just not your works. <laughs> we believe you're saved by the work of Jesus Christ and you appropriate that work for yourself through faith by placing your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ you now are receiving that justification that comes through faith a key distinction is we believe there is nothing you can do to earn that justification there's nothing you can do to merit it you can't make yourself worthy for it. You can't earn it. You can't labor for it. It's given as a gift. And if it was given as, as a result of your works, that would be wages, not a gift. It is given through work, but the work of Jesus. And you receive it through faith as a gift. You can't earn it, and therefore it's by grace. It's through faith, by grace. And remember, all this is instantaneous. At the moment the sinner places his confidence in the completed work of the Christ on the cross. So why if you reject this idea of the finished work of Christ on the cross and you believe that your own works merit salvation, you would have a, a Christ who would need to be perpetually sacrificed. And that, of course, is what you see in Catholicism with the perpetual sacrifice of Christ to the mass. And this is why a Catholic would often look at the Protestants and say, well, you guys are out to lunch because you believe that you don't need works to be saved. I mean, that's just crazy that you don't need works, that you don't need to demonstrate a right standing before God in order to receive the right standing. In fact, in Catholicism, they often refer to our concept of justification as a legal fiction. That we as Protestants believe that God justifies you at once through faith. You haven't done anything good yet. How can you be righteous? And we're, we're saying, you know, the thief on the cross was declared righteous. He's justified at that moment. The sinner turns to places his faith in Christ. He's immediately justified and he's declared righteous by God. And they would say, well, that's, that's a legal fiction. The sinner has done nothing righteous yet. 
You can't just invent this kind of righteousness and we say, ah, oh, we're not inventing it. It's the righteousness of Christ achieved by his life given to us through faith. And so this is the key language that salvation is a gift appropriated through faith that's given by grace. Our salvation was accomplished by Christ's death and resurrection. And we receive it not through the sacerdotal system of Rome, but we receive it as a free gift. For us, justification is not a process, it's an event. Righteousness is not the merit of our works, but the gift of God based upon the merit of Christ's work. See, there's a sea change of difference there. Faith becomes, in our mindset, a condition of justification. But faith for us is not the result of justification. You see the difference? In Catholicism, everything results as it grows. But for us, no. Faith is the entrance and it results in justification immediately. Faith does not constitute righteousness, but rather faith is the means by which we are declared righteousness. And then we go on to bear the fruit of righteousness. The Catholic error is the fruit of righteousness ends up becoming your righteousness. And we say no, no. Let me give you a quote from John Owen, the British reformer. He writes this, British Puritan. We are justified by faith alone, not by faith that is alone. That's a key sentence because you get one word wrong and you're into heresy right there. We are justified by faith alone, not by faith that is alone. And what he means by that is that our justification comes by faith and at that moment we're declared righteous, but it's a real righteousness. It's a real living and active righteousness that's inside of us. And so at that moment of our conversion, we now have a life of good deeds that we're pushed out into. Again, not to make our righteousness, but we now have a life of good deeds because we've already been given this real, live, active, vibrant, living righteousness inside of us. So for us, obedience comes from faith in a very literal sense that God gives us this righteous desires, this new nature through our faith and that launches us into obedience. So now imagine taking all of that language that salvation comes by faith alone, through grace alone and not on a system of works and merit but sets you into a life of obedience, taking that language and applying it to an American culture today. Notice how different the American culture is today than that European culture of the 1500s. Today, a typical American doesn't grow up with the kind of shackled to this system of sacraments and sacerdotal ceremonies and Catholicism. A typical American grows up with this individualistic mindset that your identity is what defines you. You can define yourself and your identity is, is who you are and now how you act in life based upon the choices you've made and how you see yourself. And I'm not even talking about the cultural craziness of the last few years. I'm talking about the last hundred years. I mean, this is Americanism where you can be what you wanna be. You can do what you wanna do. Think of a typical question you ask an American kid. What do you wanna be when you grow up? Could you imagine that being asked in the 1500s in Europe? <laughs> What do you want to be when you grow up? That'd be, it'd be an insulting, it'd be, it'd be almost funny. Like you have a choice and <laughs> what do you mean? I can think of anything I want. Crazy talk. It's what we take for granted. In our world, your decisions define you and you make a decision about who you are and that is you. Don't ever let anybody tell you it's otherwise. 
You want to be a banker, be a banker. You want to be a lawyer, be a lawyer. An astronaut, shoot for the moon, they say. You want to be a Christian? Believe. Say the phrase. All you have to do is say you believe in Jesus and you're in. And over time, that snowball grows and it gathers momentum and churches grow with people who have made this kind of superficial profession and now back it up with ritual and routine. And if you look at them and you say, ah, do you have saving faith? Are there works? Is your life changed? And because over time it becomes people who say, I'm a Christian, but I'm not following Jesus with my life. I'm a Christian, but you know, I'm not really walking with the Lord right now. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, what? what's going on? And you say, I think you should have a changed life. I think you should be obedient to the Lord. I think you should count the cost and die to yourself and follow Christ. And they say, whoa, brother, I thought you were saved by faith alone. <laughs> Do you see how inadequate the language that was used to combat Catholicism in the 1500s is for this present day to combat the decisionistic, lowest common denominator, self-identify form of Christianity that is present and vibrant now? They're two different errors. You need different sets of language. You need a different grid for them. You know, you want to invade Central Asia, you don't send the Navy. You want to win a battle at sea, you don't send the army. You want to expose the error of Catholicism, you use the language of faith alone and grace alone. You want to tangle with the person who says, uh, yo, I'm a Christian, I got the tattoo, and that's it. You can't use that same language to that person. It's two different things. And that is what is happening here in James 2, verse 18. Now, this is admittedly a very difficult verse. Most commentators say this is the most difficult verse in the New Testament to understand just textually, not even interpretively. Now, it, is, it does have its problems interpretively because it seems to contradict Paul in Romans. Paul in Romans says that salvation comes through faith and not by works. And here it says salvation comes by faith. And if you have faith without works, it's dead faith. It's not salvation at all. And so you think, well, that's obviously a contradiction. But understand that these are, James and Paul are allies. They're fighting two different enemies. They're fighting two different threats to the gospel. Picture them fighting back to back. They're saying opposite things because they're back to back, but they're around the same core truth. And that's why it's helpful here not to define salvation and the relationship between faith and works as against Catholicism or as against easy believism, but rather as just essentially what Paul is describing or what James is describing here. That you place your faith in the work of Jesus Christ and that appropriates his righteousness. God's Holy Spirit gives you life and gives you the faith to do that. And that then directs you through your life to a life of good works that's a result of your faith. Let me just say it one more time before we look at verse 18. Obedience is a fruit of faith. It's never the root, it's always the fruit. So, verse 18 is so complicated, as commentators point out, not for the reasons that how it relates to Paul, but because you're dealing with a quote here. Someone will say, and then it follows as a quote. It's so complicated because you don't know where the quote ends. The Greek world, believe it or not, the Roman Empire and the Greek language did not invent quotation marks. So you wanna know why Rome fell? I think it's because they had the inability to quote each other accurately my own hot take on that. Somebody could do a PhD dissertation. I think it could be backed up though. 
And this is an example of that. Someone will say, so you know it's a quote. Someone will say, but you don't know where the quote starts, or I assume it's the next word, but you don't know where it stops. Someone will say, quote, what are they saying? Well, one view is this, the person just saying, you have faith, close quotes. So someone will say, you have faith, as if it's like a sarcastic rejoinder to what he just said in verses 14 through 17. In verses 14 through 17, he said, Faith without works is dead. You know, what kind of faith is it that doesn't help the other Christians that are in need? If you turn your eyes, you turn your back to those Christians who are, are starving and are hungry and you just walk away, can your faith save you? Obviously not. And you're like so shocked, James would say that. You're like, you have faith? Close quote. And James is like, yeah, I have faith and I've got works too, okay? That would be one view of this. As I said, it's confusing. My Madison, my 10-year-old, she's going through this editing book right now in homeschool and it gives her this, you know, it gives her like a paragraph and at the end of the paragraph, there's no punctuation or anything there and then the column, it says, in this paragraph, you need like six periods and two exclamation points and three sets of quotes and a semicolon. <laughs> there's lots of ways you can make that flow, you know? <laughs> it may say all kinds of things. It reminds me of the, uh, the president who was told, hey, there's foreign interference in our elections and he says, no problem. And the next day says, no, no, no problem. <laughs> you know, the eight o'clock service was my focus group, and they thought that was way more funny than you did right there. <laughs> so what is, is this a no problem, or is this a no problem quote? Is this a you have faith, or is this a you have faith, and the quote keeps going, it's the middle of verse 18, and I have works. As if there's this random person who says, you, have, you might have faith, but I have works. That's the way the ESV translates it. That's why they put their quotes there. There's another view, which is the way it's, you see it in the New American Standard, which puts the quotes at the very end of the verse. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you by my faith by my works. And so if you've got the NASB, it's presenting it as if there's this other person who comes along who's James's ally. Like he's on James's side. James says, you don't just listen to me, bring in this fictional guy. And he says, he's, he agrees with me. You got, you got faith, but no works. I've got works. You can't show me your faith without works. And in the same way, I can show you my faith by my works. But I think the right way to understand this, this is just my own, I, don't, I wouldn't be martyred for this truth or anything, but this is my own understanding of this. You have faith and I have works. I think the quotes should probably end there where it is in the ESV. It's as if this person is saying, James, you just established that a person who says he has faith and no works is wrong because you can't have faith without works. I get you. But what now, James, what now about a person who says he has works and no faith? What are you gonna do with that? And you might be thinking, well, who would say that? Well, I, there's a very common teaching in Judaism, which James is writing to Jews here, that kind of goes along those lines. That would say, you know, in most of Judaism, they didn't have this concept of saving faith. They had this concept that because you're an Abra a descendant of Abraham, you then work that out in your life through acts of righteousness and good works, and, and you'll be justified by God because of those things. So it wasn't that you had saving faith, it was that you had this ethnic identity that then produced good works in your life. This would be very easy to picture a, a Jew of this time period who says, I don't know what you're talking about saving faith because I have a lot of works. I don't need your faith. I think that's what James is introducing here. 
someone will say, okay, James, you have faith, but I've got works. What are you gonna do with that? And James's response is to say, you know what, you can show me faith apart from your works, but I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, James is saying you can't separate those two. You can't say I've got faith and no works, and you also can't say I've got works and no faith. I mean, what do you, what do you think God is wanting from you? Do you think God gives a faith that doesn't bring with it works? May it never be. Or the flip side of that, do you think God would be honored by your works if you don't have faith? Do you think God is pleased by the self-righteous acts of men that are just making the world a better place? You know, Paul writes, Hebrews 11, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So how could, you, how could good works be pleasing to God if they don't come with faith? They can't be. As Paul says in Acts 17, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything because he alone gives all men their life, breath, and all things. Do you think God desires rivers of oil? <laughs> Is, is God pleased by the sacrifice of bulls and goats and rams? Even the death of a firstborn? Would, would those things be pleasing to God if you could offer God those sacrifices? God does not delight in that kind of sacrifice. Instead, he delights in the obedience that comes from a faithful heart, a heart with faith. And so James says, you wanna separate faith and works? You're, <laughs> you're barking up the wrong tree. You can't be pleasing to God without a faith that includes works. Well, verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. James is here tangling with the person who says, hey, fine, I get it, but I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. Isn't that good enough for me? Do you want something more from me than just believing in God? After all, I thought you believed in the sol sola fide, faith alone, huh? So what this person is quoting here, you believe that God is one, what James is saying, attributing to this person, is the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, verse four, the most famous verse in the Old Testament. Every Jew has this verse memorized. This is the John three sixteen. You could say it that way of the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh your God, Yahweh is one, Shema Israel. Yahweh El Chenu Yahweh Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord Yahweh, He is one God. Now, it doesn't just mean monotheism, as if there's only one God. If that's what it was after, you would say it differently. You'd say there's only one God instead of saying the Lord is one. It's not speaking of the oneness of God, it's speaking of the unity of God. That's the way that word is often used in the Old Testament. There was morning and evening, day one. So two different things together have one identity, one day. God created mankind in our image, plural, our image, and the Holy Spirit is hovering above the waters at creation, and yet there is one God. And so this is built into this, uh, even to the Old Testament, this idea that God is the speaker and he has his word and they have their spirit or there's father, son, and spirit. That doesn't mean you have three gods. There's one God right there in Deuteronomy 6.4. Yahweh, our God, Yahweh. Even the two phrases are Yahweh and, and God. Elohenu, God, and Yahweh. Two different titles, but it's one God. 
The Father and Son are one God. It's a very Trinitarian language tucked there in the most obvious verse in the Old Testament. And this gets picked up in the New Testament, of course. New Testament writers love that verse. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4. There's only one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Notice how Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 takes the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, uh, Deuteronomy 4, 6, in, um, 6, 4, and splits Lord and Father. Father God, Lord Jesus Christ, but one Galatians 3, verse 20, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is one. Obviously, Jesus Christ is a mediator sent from the Father, and yet you can't have two gods. You only have one God united in two and later three persons. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So a mediator has to be from God and from uh, both parties that he's mediating, Jesus is from God because there's only one God. He has to be divine of the same essence, the same being as the Father. So James says, you believe all that. You believe that Jesus is God. You believe in the Father. And you think that is sufficient to be saved. Verse 19 is very sarcastic. I hope you have your sarcastic lens on. You believe that God is one? Great! I'm so proud of you. Do you know that even demons believe that? That's what James says. Even demons understand that. Here's a shocker for you. Demons have excellent theology. I bet a demon could sign our church's statement of faith. Maybe even with a clear conscience. I don't know if demons have clear consciences. Probably not. But they could sign a statement of faith and believe it. Demons are premillennial dispensationalists who believe in the sovereignty of God over salvation. They believe all that. They believe the right stuff. But they're not saved. Notice the foolishness of saying anyone who says they believe in Jesus is on their way to heaven. Or merely that any kind of superficial belief, that any belief in Jesus, all belief is the same. Any belief in Jesus, I believe the truth of Jesus, I believe that, oh, that means you're saved. Notice the silliness of that. If your idea of faith alone ushers demons into eternal glory, your idea of faith alone has a problem. That's James's point here. You wanna argue for faith alone to save you without your works? You wanna say, I don't need works to be saved because I have faith. Well, you're going to the place the demons go then, is James's logic here. As I mentioned, demons have some good theology. Matthew 8, the demons call Jesus the Son of God. Mark 5, they call Jesus Son of God Most High. They even have this honoring phrase for both God and Jesus. Luke 4, verse 41, Luke says the demons knew that Jesus was the Messiah. So it's not just that the demons bump into Jesus on earth and recognize him, like, hey, uh, didn't I see you up in heaven before? Yeah, carry on their way. No, they, they bump into Jesus and they recognize him as the savior of the world, the one sent from heaven. Demons know that about Jesus. They don't just believe in Jesus, they believe he's the Messiah. They believe him in a knowledge, personal way. Acts 19, verse 15, remember the the sons of Siva get beat up by the the demons? (laughs) And they report that the demons said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? (laughs) 
Notice that phrase is Acts 19 that the demons use. They, the demons say, Jesus, I know. Implication being, I would listen to Jesus, which of course is played out. When the, the de, uh, demoniac is confronted by Christ, the demons shriek out and they say, it's, don't send us away, it's not our time. I mean, the demons obey the commands of Christ. So, you believe that God is one. You believe that Jesus is God. Great. That's a great start. You're up to where demons are. However, you're not quite at their level yet. Because demons have one key advantage over the almost Christian. Demons at least have enough common sense to fear God. That's how this verse ends. Demons believe that God is one, but they at least tremble. The demons and the demoniac, when they're confronted with Christ, they shriek out. And they say, not yet. They know they're gonna end in judgment. And they're afraid of it. They tremble at it. So, here's the question. Are you the almost Christian? As you think through that, I mean, I know there's always a fear that if I ask the question that way, that people who do have what James 2.14 calls saving faith, that people do have saving faith, they do have authentic faith that has produced works in their life, they have been saved by faith through grace, and they have should have assurance of their salvation, but when they hear the question, are you the almost Christian, they might unduly doubt their own salvation. I understand that danger. Because, remember Jesus told the 12 disciples, one of you will betray me, and remember what happens? 11 of them said, is it me, is it me, is it me? And that's always what happens. And the 12th one got up and betrayed him. But ask yourself, are you the almost Christian? I don't want to cause anybody to unduly doubt their salvation. But I want you to think, what are you taking confidence in? Why do you think you have saving faith? I mean, some people might think they have saving faith because they preach. They can stand in front of a congregation and preach a good sermon. Does that mean they have saving faith? I mean, I hope you don't say yes. Or another might think he has saving faith because he can lead music. In a church of all places, people gather around and sing with him. Certainly that one has saving faith, right? Oh, I hope not. I hope that's not the grounds of salvation. As a pastor, I have to understand that the sermons burn away. My sermons will not be preached in heaven. My ministry could go away. I could lose my ministry for any number of reasons. But would I lose the Lord then if that happened? You might draw assurance of your salvation through any number of ways that are not valid places to have assurance. You might think, oh, but I fear God. Almost Christians fear God. Ah, 
I've made a profession of faith. Almost Christians can make professions. You can be an almost Christian and even have gifts you use in the church. You can be an almost Christian and have conviction of sin in your life. There's examples in the Bible of those who feel convicted about their own actions yet remain but almost a Christian. You can desire the grace of God and be but almost a Christian. Think of Enoch who sought repentance, sought God's grace with tears but could, but could not have it. Sorry, not Enoch, Esau who sought God's favor and repentance and grace with tears and yet it was removed from him. You could be an almost Christian and tremble at the word of God. You could be an almost Christian and be a member of a church. You could be an almost Christian and have great hopes in heaven like those in Matthew 7 who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and expect to get in but be yet almost a Christian. You could be an almost Christian and have external visible changes. Think of Simon the sorcerer. You could be an almost Christian and be very zealous in matters of religion with strong convictions and be but almost a Christian. You could be an almost Christian and be devoted to prayer. You could be an almost Christian and in some sense have the spirit of God like Balaam did. You could be an almost Christian with with some kind of faith in Jesus. Think of those at the end of John 2 who marveled at what he did in cleansing the temple and declaring he would raise his body in three days and they put their, they believed in Jesus it says. But the next verse says Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. They remained yet almost the Christian. The almost Christian can love the people of God. The almost Christian can go very far in obeying the commands of God. He can even be in some senses sanctified and be but almost a Christian. He may do all these external things with internal strife and anguish and remain almost a Christian. What is the one sign of the true believer? The one thing not on this list is a love for Christ. That's it. A love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Can't be faked. It's what demons don't possess. (laughs) And it only comes from having a new heart. The heart of stone removed, a heart of flesh put in, done by the Holy Spirit, through faith, by grace. And listen, there is nothing you can do to make yourself worthy of God's love. You can't earn it and you can't buy it. You can't do sacraments to appropriate it. You can only Place your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Count the cost. Turn from your sin and turn, and turn to Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does. So you leave here and you come across a person who says, I believe in faith alone and that's why I have no works. You say, that's not sola fide, that's sola diablo right there. <laughs> I have no works, I have faith, no works. What do you say? You say faith without works? That's like a kitchen with no cooking. It's like a restaurant with no food. Who would go to a restaurant that didn't have food? Maybe just for the Wi-Fi, but you can get that at church. (laughs) 
Faith with no works, that's a restaurant with no food, that's a book with no words. It's a school with no students. It's a business with no customers. It's a bank with no cash. It's a lake with no water. Faith with no works, it's a tree with no leaves. It's a body with no life. Specifically, faith with no works, it's dead. But praise be to God that he does not give us dead faith. Lord, we're thankful that you give a faith that is world-changing, life-tilting, destiny-altering. The love of God is wrought in the soul of them that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We confess we do not earn our salvation by works, but we also confess that our salvation is of such a nature that it produces works. We're grateful that you didn't give your spirit only to us enough to influence us. You didn't give us our spirit, your spirit enough just to give us somewhat of a faith, but your spirit instead is given to us to draw us to Christ, to bring us from death to life, from darkness to light. Your spirit illumines our hearts and compels us, Lord. The love of Christ controls us. We know we're saved by faith alone, and yet you have prepared good deeds for us to walk in from before time. So I pray that we would be faithful to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is you who works and acts in us and through us according to your own good purpose. Well, I pray for the hearts of here today, people here today who've never given you their life, who look in the mirror and see the almost Christian. I pray this morning would be the morning where they turn from their own life and turn to you. They no longer stand upon the foundation of works, but they stand upon the foundation of your completed work in Jesus Christ. They no longer stand upon the, the foundation of some kind of profession, but they stand upon the foundation of your spirit indwelling them, the love they have from you. Lord, we know we draw assurance from our obedience. May we never think we draw our salvation from our obedience. We're grateful that you have begun a good work in us, and so you will complete it on the day of Christ Jesus, and we pray that that day would come quickly. It's in his name we pray, amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, We'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.